you, sappy music. Hey there, Fighting for the Faith podcast listener. Just want to remind you at the top of the program here that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know, no, the music isn't working. Kill the music. Yeah, sorry. I see other guys use sappy music. I, uh, bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Wednesday, June 15th, 2011. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the week feels like it's half done. Is that, is that weird? Oh no, I'm in one of those moods. This has got to be frighteningly scary. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment. The goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. We analyze uh, the religious news, if you would. And uh, not only that, we we keep an eye out on the stories that are just not covered by the uh, mainstream media because they wouldn't know how to cover a religious story correctly if their lives depended on it. Um, you know, In fact, expecting the media to cover a religious story correctly uh, would be like, um, I don't know, expecting Rick Warren to conduct a liturgical service. I mean, <clears throat> I don't think things, was, things would go well. Hey, talking about Rick Warren on tomorrow's edition of Fighting for the Faith, uh, that's uh, Thursday, June 16th, I will be uh, having part two of my... Um, uh, John Piper, Rick Warren interview debrief with uh, Phil Johnson. He is stateside again, and uh, we're going to be uh, recording the uh, pro- uh, the program tonight. It, it looks like we're going to be recording it tonight. So, Lord willing, uh, and the creek don't rise. That's what the plans are for tomorrow's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Looking forward to that. Okay, let's. I'm. <laughs> I feel like I'm already behind. Anyway, uh, th- there's. Let's just say there's three primary things that I want to uh, talk about today. Three primary things I want to talk about today. One, I want to, uh, well, and, and this isn't even in the right order. Um, one, I want to talk about uh, Albert Moeller's uh, recent piece entitled An Unmitigated Theological Disaster, Kirby God Siege Strikes Again. I, I think this is worth passing along to you. Uh, I want to give you a BioLogos update. Now, correct me if I'm wrong here, but um, uh, uh, BioLogos, these are the great defenders of mixing evolution with uh, Christianity. Um, 
uh, am I wrong in my uh, assessment here that uh, if they were to write a piece, uh, 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 you know, a column regarding the resurrection of Jesus, does that seem as like it's a little bit beyond what their normal fare is? Well, they they've there's a brand new piece over at the Biologos Forum entitled "Does Resurrection Contradict Science." And I'm going to read this to you because I think this just further reveals the true nature of uh, of biologos. And basically, what we're looking at here is a complete resurgence of uh, rationalist, uh, rationalistic uh, rationalism. You know, uh, rationalism, science, uh, scientism, and uh, and basically uh, jettisoning jettisoning the scriptures and uh, and the authority of scripture in order to supplant it with uh, reason and scientism. Anyway, we're going to be taking a look at that. Um, and then, uh, you know, I wanted to get to this the other day, and I didn't. Um, uh, Todd Bentley. Uh, it's been a while since we've done a Todd Bentley update. And um, we're going to be, uh, well, Todd Bentley, thanks to um, Rick Joyner over there at Morningstar. Todd Bentley, the uh, guy who, um, well, left his wife for the babysitter, uh, has been restored to ministry there, and uh, he, he now has a um, he's got his own channel at Morningstar TV, and the name of his program is Heavenly Realities. Heavenly Realities. This is, and uh, we're going to be listening to episode three, or at least you know a fair portion of it. They're not very long. Um, entitled "The Burning Ones," and um, uh, he he and Jason Hooper. Uh, Jason Hooper is uh, of Holy Ghost hokey pokey fame. Uh, if you've uh, heard that Marnie Python uh, sketch that we've uh, that I've put together entitled "The Holy Ghost Hokey Pokey," uh, Jason Hooper is the one who is uh, leading worship there at Morningstar and uh, in giving us the Holy Ghost Hokey Pokey. So we're going to be listening to Todd Bentley and Jason Hooper wax eloquent about um, the Burning Ones. <laughs> and uh, you know, when I think of the Burning Ones, I usually think of you know hell the lake of fire things like that i don't want to be a burning one um that i'm i'm very thankful for god's grace and his mercy and the full pardon and the forgiveness of sins that he's given me as a result of christ shed blood on the cross appropriated to me you know th- through the giving of uh, repentance and faith and trust in the forgiveness of sins uh, through the gospel anyway um yeah so uh, you know i i i am endeavoring to not be a burning one and uh, in fact if I am suffering from heartburn or anything else on my body that burns, um, you know, it doesn't matter where it's located. Burning is not a good thing. Um, just anyway, uh, so yeah, we've got that. And then I've, uh, we're going to be going to Corona, California for a uh, Chris Songson sermon review today. And this is an interesting one because um, he's um, talking about uh, something that sounds kind of like forgiveness um it's forgive it's uh, it's gospely gospelish and uh, anyway uh, the the uh, the name of the sermon is uh, freedom freedom um and this is uh, part 3 of the uh, sermon series that they did recently concluded there entitled freedom and so um after listening over and again to uh, Chris Songson in this latest edition of uh, his stuff I'm convinced the guy doesn't even know the biblical gospel and I think it's relevant to point out the fact that he used to be on staff at Saddleback one of the uh, pastors there and uh, so uh, that's what we're going to be doing today got lots to do uh and uh, so 
settle in. Seatbelts, um, uh, fuzzy bunny slippers, adult beverages, duct tape, uh, tweezers, uh, bendy straws, and Q-tips are uh, definitely needed today. And uh, keep in mind that you do not want to be pounding your head against your steering wheel if you're driving. That's just some important stuff. So with that, we are actually going to dive into the program proper. And I think what we're going to do is we're going to start off with our um, uh, with our Biologos update. Here we go. She loves a monkey's uncle. Oh, whoa. She loves a monkey's uncle. And the monkey's uncle, they for me. Well, I don't care what the whole world thinks. She loves a monkey's uncle. Call us a couple of missing links. She loves a monkey's uncle. Love all his monkey shines. Every day is Valentine's. I love the monkey's uncle and the monkey's uncle, they for me. Ape for me. Okay, yeah, that's right. Uh, the monkey's uncle's ape for me. Yeah, it's nothing but a bunch of monkey shine. Anyway, um, <clears throat> guest uh, columnist there at the um, uh, the Biologos Forum, Matt J. Rossano, who is a professor of psychology at Southeastern Louisiana University and author of Supernatural Selection, How Religion Evolved. <clears throat> and uh, this, uh, by the way, originally appeared at the Huffington Post, and uh, it, based upon our coverage of Huffington Post uh, religious uh, articles and uh, things like that, uh, it, it's it's so clear to all of us that the Huffington Post is just a bastion, a bulwark, a a fortress of uh, Christian orthodoxy. <clears throat> if you're detecting sarcasm in my voice, it's because there's sarcasm in my voice. Anyway, um, <clears throat> Matt J. Rossano writes, The scientific case against the resurrection is pretty straightforward. Once dead, you stay dead. That's just the way it works. Coming back to life after having been dead, I mean, really Dead. Now, I I think he put in really dead because uh, you you've, you've all seen the the movie The Princess Bride. Uh, you, you, Miracle Max. Uh, you know he made the claim that people sometimes can be only mostly dead. Um, but um, you know, so uh, Matt Rosano here is making sure that that once you're really really dead, like you, you know we've taken the body to the morgue, um, uh, like. Uh, your body has lost heat, uh, rigor mortis is set in, uh, things of that nature. Um, anyways, he says, um, coming back to life after having been dead, I mean, really dead, would constitute a violation of natural law. Okay. A miracle, and miracles just don't happen. Fair enough. But in his recent book on the last days of Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, Holy Week from the entrance into Jerusalem to the resurrection, Joseph Ratzinger, a.k.a. Pope Benedict XVI, argues that reckoning resurrection as a, res- as a resuscitation of a corpse is to misunderstand its true significance. Jesus' resurrection, he contends, was an utterly singular event straining the very limits of human understanding. Quote, anyone approaching the resurrection accounts in the belief that he knows what rising from the dead means will inevitably misunderstand those accounts and then dismiss them as meaningless, see page 243. In fact, if Jesus' resurrection were merely coming back to life in any way that we might comprehend, then 
it would be of little significance. Uh, now, now, it must be acknowledged that if in Jesus' resurrection we're dealing simply with the miracle of resuscitated a resuscitated corpse, it would ultimately be of no concern to us. See page 243 again. So what then does resurrection mean? Well, for Benedict, it, rep it represents a new dimension of reality breaking through into human experience. It's not a violation of the old. It's a manifestation of something new. Quote, Jesus had no, not returned to a normal human life in this world like Lazarus and the others whom Jesus raised from the dead. He entered upon a different life, a new life. He has entered the vast breadth of God himself. I'm not sure what any of this means. Anyway, because it's something entirely new, it cannot represent a violation of natural law as understood by science. Quote, naturally, there can be no contradiction of clear scientific data. The resurrection accounts certainly speak of something outside of our world of experience. They speak of something new, something unprecedented, a new dimension of reality that is revealed. What already exists is not called into question. Rather, we are told that there is a further dimension beyond what was previously known. Does that contradict science? Can there really only ever be what there has always been? Can there not be something unexpected, something unimaginable, something new? If there really is a God, is he not able to create a new dimension of human existence, a new dimension of reality altogether? Thus, in this view, resurrection, as with all true miracles, is not contrary to science, but an indicator that science does not yet describe the full expanse of reality. Indeed, some may argue that science itself contains similar indicators, the 11 or so dimensional universe required by some versions of string theory and multiverse theory of universe, where ours is but one of an infinite array of universes with variable physical laws, quantum entanglements, spooky action at a distance, the mysterious emergence of consciousness from uh, inorganic matter all push the limits of human reason and imagination, suggesting to some that reality may be far more complex than the human mind can grasp. For a moment, let us entertain the possibility that resurrection is, as Benedict interprets it, not a violation of natural law, but an indicator of something beyond our scientific understanding of the universe. Now, I'm going to stop here for a second. I want to point something out. This sounds eerily, 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 eerily similar to the types of reasoning and arguments that we got from rationalist philosophers like David Hume, you know, um, uh, this idea, uh, notice what is inviolable in, you know, in this man's mind, natural law, natural law cannot be violated. It is inviolable. You cannot ever, ever break natural law. Therefore, we must reinterpret the resurrection in light of this reality. Natural law is God, and it will not be trifled with. It will not be trampled upon. It will not allow for itself to be violated. Natural law is omnipotent. Natural law is well, you get what I'm pointing out here? That's one of the major things about scientism and uh, and rationalism. It's this idea that the, the one inviolable thing is natural law. And, and I've, I've read several articles regarding 
um, Pope Benedict's latest book, where he tries to explain the resurrection in such a way that it doesn't violate natural law. To which I would basically say, oh, really, um, why do we even need to do that? Why do we even need to do that at all? Who says natural law cannot be violated? Hmm? Who says? Where is it written? Is it written in stone? Is it written on a, on, on a black obelisk that floats around planet Jupiter? I mean, how do we know that natural laws cannot be broken? Hmm? Just because they don't normally, they're not normally broken doesn't mean anything. Now, if there is a God, and I think that there is, and I think the case can be made along these lines. Jesus Christ claimed to be the God of the Jews in human flesh, right? When challenged regarding the authority to do and say the things that he was doing and saying, um, in one particular case, uh, he actually drove money changers out of the temple like he owned the place. Um, weird, because uh, the the temple was like the the house of God. I mean... The the house of God and Jesus, you know, yeah, I mean, it would, be, it would be like if I came home one day and uh, my uh, teenager decided to invite a whole bunch of friends over and they were having a little mini party. Not that there was anything illicit going on, but I came home and, and there was a bunch of people in my house that I don't know. I don't particularly care for the things that they're doing and saying in my home. And so um, I well, made a um a stink, a, a, a spectacle. And basically, let's just say I got a little upset and I decided that I was going to shoo everybody out of my house. But in this particular case, I, I there'd be no need for me to make a cord of, uh, uh, like out of a, make a whip out of cords and, and start driving people out that way. Um, uh, you can get arrested for that. But anyway, um, but you know, so, you know, I have had enough and I say, get out of my house. And I shoo them all out, right? And uh, people wouldn't challenge me. It was like, they wouldn't say, well, uh, on what authority are you like, uh, you know, throwing us out of your house, dude? No, there wouldn't be a guy doing that because everyone knows. It's like, oh, uh, that's, um, that's, uh, that's the guy who owns the house. He's the one who pays for the home. And uh, this is his home and this is his furniture and that's his stuff. And so he has every right and authority to kick people out of his house. Now, see, that's what Jesus was doing in the temple. He was driving people out of the temple complex, the money changers, throwing their ta their tables over and making quite a commotion. And uh, when the uh, Jews came up to Jesus to, and challenged him and asked by what authority he was doing these things, what sign could he give to show that uh, he was that, you know, he had the authority to act like it was his house. Um, Jesus said, tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it again in three days. And, and of course, they, they, they were what? It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to rebuild it in three days? But the temple he was speaking of was the temple of his body. Jesus said regarding his body that it was a temple, and he would rebuild it again after three days. Okay, Now, so here's the deal. Scientism and rationalism 
basically has made the, the natural law God. It cannot be violated. It cannot be tampered with. It cannot be monkeyed with. it. And yet they act like they know a priori what can and cannot happen throughout the universe. The one thing we know can't happen is that natural law can be broken. Well, how do you know it can't be broken? I mean, here's the deal. The Bible describes death as basically the tearing apart of, of two things that are joined together in, 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 in such a way that if you tear them apart, the body experiences death. And that would be the soul of man and his body. I mean, they're so, in, it, they're so mixed together. There's not two of you. There's only one of you. And, but uh, you know, when, when your soul departs from your body, your body dies. Well, here's my simple question if if a soul can depart from a body and it would result in its death couldn't a soul return to its body and that body be rebuilt and that body come back to life why why is that so hard to believe and jesus after his resurrection i mean he did things like ate fish he uh you know he told thomas come here and touch my hands and my side and see it's it's me, you know. He, you know, he ate, he ate fish with his disciples. He, you know, they thought he was a ghost. And he said, "Look, look, look, look. A ghost doesn't have flesh and bones as you see that I have." So I don't know where Ratzinger got his ideas that the, well, the res the nature of this resurrection is something completely, uh, well, not in violation of the laws of nature. And I don't know where he got his data from. Is basically what it comes down to. And notice the words. Merely a resuscitation. Me <laughs> okay, yeah. So, so, uh, so the the laws of nature can't be violated. No, 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 no. That can't ever happen because the laws of nature are inviolable, even by God. Apparently, even by God, the God who created the laws of nature cannot break them. And Ratzinger here is, you know, his new ideas, you know, in, in an attempt to take away the offense of the resurrection uh you know uh, you know talk about it in terms of well it, it can't be just merely a resuscitation of the body um yeah. when the body's really dead really 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 dead and then comes back to life that's not a resuscitation when lazarus was called forth from the grave after he'd been in the you know in his tomb for a few days and they were afraid that there would be a bad odor when they opened up the tomb um, yeah, that wasn't merely a resuscitation. That was a full-blown raising from the dead, a resurrection. Now, here's the difference. It is according to Scripture that, uh, you know, that Jesus is the first fruits of a new kind of body that we will all be resurrected into, okay? Uh, we're not going to be resurrected into sinful flesh, you know, but this is what the scriptures say. But anyway, so I, you know, again, I, I have no problem with a God who can break the laws of nature. He's the one who wrote them. And who's to say that bodies raising from the dead is a violation of natural laws in the first place? Again, where are these natural laws recorded? Where's the stone that they're on where it says, Thou shalt not raise bodies from the dead? Just because observational science hasn't observed such a thing doesn't mean that it's a violation of nature. It's just it's just something that hasn't been observed yet. You get what I'm saying? Anyway... 
So what are we getting from the Biologos, folks? Nothing but a, basically a, a, a revival of you know, a modernistic, rationalistic, scientistic um, uh, liberalism. This is what we're – this is the state – this is the same stuff that utterly destroyed the mainline denominations. It just sent them into complete apostasy. And uh, you'd think that we would we had learned our lesson from history that uh, mixing Christianity with this stuff equals death of Christianity. No, the biologist people think that they, they that they can avoid the death that occurs. But see, that's the thing, is that uh, when you mix truth with error, well, according to the natural law, which can't be violated, it ends up killing uh, the religion that tries to do that. It's just it's just one of the laws of nature. So anyway. <clears throat> Moving along. From the albertmuller.com website. Dun, dun. Headline reads, An unmitigated theological disaster. Kirby Godsey strikes again. <clears throat> Albert Muller, who I have deepest respect for, says, uh, quote, Most Christians assume that Christianity is one and only religion that God inspired and that carries the imprimatur of God's blessing, laments our Kirby Godsey. In his new book, Is God a Christian? Give me a break. Oh, man. Godsey sets out to oppose that assumption and to argue that the stakes for mankind have grown too high for any of us to engage our faith as if our understanding of God represents the only way God's presence may be known in the world. The great question of exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ is necessarily bound up with the most central teachings of the Christian faith, which is why an argument like this must be considered so carefully. A closer look reveals that Godsey is not merely calling upon Christians to reconsider how we define and defend the gospel. He's calling for a total reconstruction of everything that Christianity represents. Godsey is no stranger to controversy, of course, in 1996. He stood at the center of a firestorm that erupted after the publication of his book, When We Talk About God, Let's Be Honest. That controversy was well-deserved since in that volume, Godsey denied that God, Jesus is God, argued that Jesus is not to be worshipped, rejected the authority of the Bible, and asserted that the crucifixion is, quote, not the saving act of God. In that book, he also rejected the claim that Jesus is the only Savior and denied that faith in Christ is needed for salvation. <laughs> well, that's quite a dossier. Anyway, <clears throat> back in 1996, Kirby Godsey was serving as president of Mercer University in Georgia, a post he held for 27 years. Mercer was then the largest institutional uh, institution affiliated with the Georgia Baptist Convention, one of the most venerable universities claiming a Southern Baptist heritage. The controversy eventually reached the point that the Georgia Baptist Convention Executive Committee established a study committee that found Godsey guilty of having, quote, failed his spiritual fiduciary responsibility as a leader of Georgia Georgia Baptist's largest institution by holding to doctrinal positions that dramatically deviate from orthodoxy. The convention finally voted to sever ties with Mercer University in 2005. They, so, oh man, so they lost the whole university? Wow. <clears throat> yeah, they should have gotten rid of him rather than the whole university. Yeah, you, you want to save the institutions. You want to pull them out of liberalism. You don't want to just throw them away. Yeah, look what happened to Harvard. Anyway, um, well, <laughs> and Princeton. Anyway, when we talk about God, let's be honest, Godsey embraced positions that the church has openly declared to be heresy. In it, in Is God a Christian? Godsey 
just picks up where he left off in his earlier book. But this time he's even more explicit, explicit in his embrace of radical pluralism. Quote, Christians need to get over it, he admonishes. Jesus is not God's only word, as he explains. Every person is a word from God that has never been spoken and will never be spoken again in exactly the same way. Holy smokes. <laughs> oh, wow. Anyway, uh, he also admonishes, admonishes Muslims to get over it when they claim that exclusive status for the Quran. The very idea of exclusivity is a peril that simply defies reason. Now, it's funny, though. His claims regarding exclusivity are exclusive. That's the funny thing about them. Anyway, let me continue here. For the most part, God studiously avoids engaging the biblical text. That is at least consistent with his marginalization of biblical authority. Quote, The notions of inerrancy and infallibility are treacherous human fallacies. He argues in his earlier book as he asserted that the authority of our faith should not rest on the Bible alone or even primarily. In his newest book, he declares, I do not believe that God actually ordered Joshua to kill every man and woman and child during his invasion of Canaan. Uh, Well, that's nice that you don't believe, but that's actual historical fact, and what the Bible records there is actually accurate. Anyway, we continue. Instead, he argues Christians should, quote, weigh Scripture against the word that we have heard and seen from God in Jesus. It's weird. Jesus never contradicted the Old Testament. In fact, he upheld it as the very word of God and held it to be true and authoritative. I mean, I love, you know, when Jesus and the uh, Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes go at it, you know, like, you know, Jesus is last week on earth. And I, I love when he, you know, when he says to the Sadducees, you know, neither the scripture nor the power of God. <laughs> you just, you know. anyway, yeah, Jesus, you know, he always quoted the Bible authoritatively. How weird. Anyway, and so I'm just going to go with Jesus. Anyway, uh, let's see here. At this point, Godsey is left in an untenable position. What does he know of Christ apart from the scriptures? Well, exactly. This is a familiar predicament for liberals who deny biblical authority but claim a knowledge of Jesus. Whatever knowledge of Jesus we have apart from the Bible is just a figment of our imagination. Right on. If the Bible is not the authoritative source of divine knowledge, we are left with nothing more than our own imagination and arbitrary judgment, and we can make Christianity anything that we might want it to be. That's right. This is this is Bible balloon animals. You know, just twist the Bible into whatever you want it to be, and say, and and you can make the Jesus that you want. This is the build a God stuff. Anyway, in the place of the Bible, God see claims human reason as his authority. Hmm, notice that the uh, it's weird because the biologus, you know, human human uh, reason as well as natural law is is the inviolable authority. Thus. No rational pathway can lead us to the conclusion that Christians alone or Muslims alone have sole access to the ultimate reality that underlies the meaning of the universe. Based on that judgment, Godsey then argues that claims of exclusivity are immoral because such claims turn Christianity into a self-centered, narcissistic, religious system that says to the rest of the world that they must become like us if they don't, if they wish to be accepted by God. Actually, that's not what the Bible actually claims, but... <clears throat> What's the point of quoting the Bible against somebody who doesn't believe the Bible? Anyway, he thus he then turns John fourteen six on his head by arguing that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life only for those for whom Jesus is the light of the world. In other words, he denies that Jesus was making any exclusive claim, an interpretation that simply flies in the face of both the text and the context of the passage. Undeterred, God see then asserts 
it, quote, it is un- simply unnecessary. It is clearly saying more than we know to claim that the light by which another lives and calls by a different name is a different light and an unauthentic word of, from God. There are different forms of universalism and inclusivism within theological circles today, but the most intellectually embarrassing form of pluralism is the very one that God sees champions. He writes as if all religions of the world are basically similar when even a cursory knowledge of the belief system of the world reveals how dissimilar they are. God see not does not even privilege monotheism, arguing that Christians should see adherents of all other religions as equals before God. See, apparently his own intuitive religion is the thing that's really binding on everybody else. Again, I just want to point this out. Godsey here is arguing for an exclusive religious claim. He's claiming that he's right and that what Christians have believed, taught, and confessed from the beginning and what's taught in the scripture is wrong. So you have to defect from your false view and embrace his true view. His view is actually exclusive. That's the weird part about it. Yeah, it's... Again, you know, what's funny is is that uh, Godsey sounds exactly like a lot of the um, emergent guys and the outlaw preacher types. You know, <clears throat> just uh, I noticed a similarity in their their argumentation and how the whole thing just falls on its face. Anyway, um, long before the controversies over his books uh, drew attention, Godsey had already incited controversy with a series of theological lectures he delivered at Houston Baptist University in 1987. And those lectures. And in the ensuing controversy, Godsey denied that Jesus died in order to pay the just penalty for human sin. Well, how does he know that Jesus didn't die to pay the just penalty for human sin when the scripture says that's what he died for? How are are his credentials better than the word of God? I want to know this. Anyway, in his new book, Godsey repudiates any uh, substitutionary understanding of the atonement, arguing that the idea of substitution winds up making God responsible for Jesus' death. Um... Jesus laid down his own life of his own free will, and he's God. That's the weird thing. You, you get, anyway, <clears throat> weird how his reason somehow trumps whatever the Bible says clearly. Weird, isn't that? I mean, the, isn't that just typical of liberals? Their reason, their understanding trumps what the Bible actually says. Anyway, furthermore, Godsey rejects all doctrines as unnecessary and unhelpful, except for that doctrine, by the way. You know, all doctrines are unnecessary and unhelpful, except for the doctrine that says that all doctrines are unnecessary and unhelpful. Because doctrine, by the way, that that's just a fancy word for teaching. Okay, so he's teaching us something, and he's teaching us that all doctrines are unnecessary and helpful, except for the teaching that all doctrines are unnecessary and unhelpful. This stuff just falls apart when you disapply it to itself. Anyway, quote. Doctrines are simply the residue of religious experience, he claims. This applies even to the doctrines concerning the person and work of Christ. Amazingly, Godsey warns against seeing a Jesus as a larger-than-life religious figure. He stresses the humanity of Jesus and criticizes those who are often so eager to ascribe divinity to Jesus. In his view, I believe it is most appropriate and most revealing to treat Jesus as one of us. What if God was one of us? Okay. 
He allows that Christians can use the language of divinity concerning Christ, but his argument is breathtaking in its rejection of Orthodox Christianity. To ordinary eyes, this is quote, quote, to ordinary eyes, Jesus was not divine, affirming the divinity of Jesus as a way of, not, of acknowledging that for the Christian, Jesus becomes the principal port through which the divine enters our lives. How weird, because Jesus actually receives worship as if he's gone. Anyway, um, it follows logically that Godsey then argues that, quote, the focus of the Christian life should be reconstructed into the worship of Jesus. Amazingly, he then offers one of the least credible theological sentences imaginable. <laughs> like any of them have been credible so far. And here it is, quote, the very earliest church saw Jesus as a simple and plain person who brought the reality and character of God down to earth. <laughs> how can he make such a claim? Anyway. No reading of the New Testament, no matter how inventive and radical, can reveal that the church thought of Jesus as only, a, quote, a simple and plain person. This statement is not even consistent with the trajectory of liberal New Testament studies, which has tended to accuse the early church of exaggerating the divinity of Christ. Not even the liberal scholars deny that the early Christians believed in the divinity of Jesus. In many ways, is God a Christian is not really a serious work of theology at all. Its arguments are too thin and unsubstantial to structure its pervasively it's pervasively eccentric godsey rejects orthodox christianity and frames his own theology but studiously avoids any real engagement with the bible he writes a book filled with critical judgments but includes not a single footnote Oh, wow. But even if this book falls short of a serious theological treatise, Godsey does deal with the most serious theological issues. And the great tragedy is, is that he repudiates Orthodox Christianity at virtually every turn. Heresy, by definition, is a gravely serious matter. At the same time, this book also serves as a warning of where Southern Baptists were headed, heading by, headed by the decade of the 1980s. Though Godsey's views are not representative of, of most SBC moderates who oppose the conservative redirection and recovery of the denomination. Godsey and his heresies have yet to be repudiated. What are you guys waiting for? To the contrary, Kirby Godsey has been a major figure in, a, in moderate Baptist life. His leadership at Mercer University was championed and fiercely defended by the moderate establishment, and this book is published by Mercer University Press. Godsey is credited with envisioning what became the New Baptist Covenant meeting in Atlanta in 2008, largely convened by former President Jimmy Carter. An event celebrating the book, complete with a book signing, is scheduled for the upcoming meeting of the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship in Tampa, Florida. Is God a Christian presents a trajectory and a set of theological arguments that reveals what happens when biblical authority is denied and the faith once for all delivered to the saints is repudiated. This book is an unmitigated theological disaster. Yes, it is. And again, thank you for the fine work that you do, Dr. Muller. And uh, it shows us over, you show us over and again by your fine scholarship, what happens when you chuck the authority of Scripture in favor of your own reasoning, your own logic, your own experiences, uh, rather than letting God's Word um, hold your thoughts and your reason captive as it should. All right, we are up on our first break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My, own, my name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back.
You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Welcome to Build-A-God. How can I help you? Hello. I received a Build-A-God certificate for my birthday, so I'm here to build my own deity. Oh, this has got to be so exciting for you. Oh, it really is. Okay, let's get started. The first thing we have to do is determine whether your god is male, female, or unisex. Men are pigs anyway. She has to be female. Great choice. Now we have to select some of the attributes of your goddess. What do you provide? Do you want her to be kind, loving, compassionate, just, angry, righteous, wrathful? The goddess I believe in would only be loving and kind. Perfect. Now, is there any kind of sin that needs tending to by your goddess? Sin? You know, things like lying, cheating, stealing, murder, homosexuality. Well, I definitely want my goddess to be gay-affirming, and sin itself just feels so negative. I'm a good person, and I think my goddess will think everyone else is too. Oh, wonderful! Your goddess is coming along beautifully! Now we have to get to the difficult questions. Does your goddess offer an afterlife? Yes! My goddess would let everyone go to heaven. Except for Hitler, Genghis Khan, and good-for-nothing ex-boyfriend. Oh, excellent! Excellent! Now for the final step. You have to name your goddess. Hmm... I think I'm going to name her Jesus. Oh, wonderful! That's what everyone names their god! Chris Roseboro here to talk about this month's perk for those of you who are members of the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. Have you ever been to Walt Disney World or Disneyland and taken a VIP tour of one of those parks? Well, if so, then you know just how valuable those tours can be in pointing you to things that you had never even noticed before. Well, this month's resource, Dr. Paul Kretzman's popular commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, is like a VIP walkthrough tour of the Gospel of Matthew itself. It's fascinating, in-depth, written on a lay level, and it'll help you to achieve a much deeper appreciation and understanding of this vital, vital biblical book. Now, if you would like to get a copy of this, this is only available for our crew members. So the way you join our crew is visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. Click on the one that says, Join Our Crew. You're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And once you fill that out, we will send you an email giving you instructions on how to download this wonderful book. So head on over to fightingforthefaith.com, join our crew today, and thank you for your support. Ba-ba-ba-ba. 
All right, we're back. Warning, you've left Christianity when you start supplanting God's word with your own opinions. What you think is rational, what you think is reasonable, what your human reasoning can understand when it contradicts scripture. Anyway, I need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith, this is listener-supported radio. That means we truly do depend upon you and your generous gifts, financial contributions, to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you. We, uh, we're still in the middle of our campaign to uh, add 350 new members of our crew. We have 180 left to go. If you are not already a member of our crew, please join our crew, because uh, when we uh, get to our goal... Um, then that will ensure that month after month after month after month we're able to pay our bills and meet budget. And uh, meeting budget and paying our bills is, well, kind of important. So uh, if you uh, are not already a member of our crew, visit FightingForTheFaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. It's only $6.95 every month uh, to join our crew. And when you join our crew, there are perks. When you, In fact, when you join our crew this month, I will send you a link to download our latest ebook, uh, uh, the popular commentary of Dr. Paul Kretzman's popular commentary on the Gospel of According to St. Matthew, a fantastic resource and uh, one definitely worth having in your digital ebook library. Uh, you'll notice that we, we're cutting edge here. You know, we're, we're super relevant. <laughs> Basically, what it means is, you know, we, we want to get this stuff out in a way that doesn't cost us an arm and a leg to publish it. That's what <laughs> that's what it really means. Anyway, but no, we're happy to get these things out to you. And, uh, of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Now, it has been a long time since we've done a true bona fide Todd Bentley update, but he's back, and he's been restored, and now he's doing, quote, ministry. Yeah, um, he, here, uh, l- listen in. I mean, he's got his own channel on uh, on the on the Morningstar uh, TV website. Uh, the name of his program, by the way, is Heavenly Realities, and... Uh, Let's just listen in. Here's him and uh, Jason Hooper of uh, Holy Ghost Hokey Pokey fame discussing the burning ones. Here, here, listen. Welcome to Heavenly Realities. This is our new web-based show. We're going to be talking about visions and revelations of the Lord. When we have timely prophetic encounters, experiences, dreams, and we believe that there's something that God wants to share with you that's going to give you an open heaven. None of this will make any sense whatsoever. <laughs> we need to see what he does with God's word. Impartation. That's going to make you hungry. We're going to do these shows. And so we want you to get ready because we want to make heaven real in your life. Tell your friends. And now let's go to the show. Welcome to Heavenly Realities. This is our third episode. And uh, I hope you enjoyed the first two shows. These are timely video messages as the Lord leads. We're having uh, visions and revelations, and we feel like there's something God might be saying to you or the body of Christ, and we believe there's an impartation for you in what we're sharing. We're... Really, we, we feel, we feel, we feel, we feel. Yeah, I feel like you're lying. I feel like you don't know God's word. I feel like you are uh, you're just a charlatan. I feel like you are a fake uh, $3 plastic banana snake oil salesman. That's what I feel about you, Todd Bentley. I, uh, what, I wonder what you feel about my feelings. We're going to do these um, small web-based shows 
We're just talking about spiritual things, heavenly things, deep things of God, prophetic encounters and dreams and whatnot. And you need to say, God, this is what I want. I'm mm. hungry for this. Yeah. I, I, it's not just the words and the encounters that I'm listening to, but I'm praying for an open heaven. I'm praying that that I'm going to receive an impartation of the spirit of wisdom and revelation yeah. and the knowledge of him even as I'm watching. So get ready for that. And uh, you're going to be blessed today as we talk about the burning ones. Oh, my come on. Jason Hooper. Uh, the burning, burning ones. ones. <laughs> yeah. <it's> a... <laughs> It sounds like Jason Hooper is suffering from something burning. Um, burning ones. How many of you are saying, God, yeah. make me a burning one? Oh, come. yeah. I, I've never said that. Never once. Come on. I, I mean, just, just cry my heart about, right there. Just thinking yeah. about, I want to be a burning one. Mm. And I think of Jonathan Wesley saying, yeah. you know, let's set ourselves on fire so the world can come and watch us burn. That's I it. think about... How much do you want to bet he hasn't read a single volume of any of the collected works of Jonathan Wesley? I mean, that's the message. Jeremiah. Yeah. And uh, it's it's the 20th chapter. 20th chapter, ninth verse. He says, the word is shut up in my bones like a fire I can't contain. In other words, I got to let what's on the inside out Out. and it comes out as a fire. Come on. I want (laughs) that. That's that's preaching. Jason Hooper, I, I don't know how to describe it. It's like it's like he has Tourette's or something. It's 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 along those lines. I mean, he's sitting here. I, he's that you know. All right, let's uh, let's continue. What's on the inside out, out, and it comes out as a fire. Come on, I want <laughs> that. That's that's preaching. That's that's mm. the revivalists. Yeah, that's the harvesters. Revival that's fires, the missionaries, mm. and the miracle workers from the altar. Come yeah, on, we want to say like Isaiah said, mm. "Here, my Lord, send that's me." That's right, and and we want to go. In- this is utter nonsense. Into the nations of the world, carrying the fiery hot coals right. of revival and preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, not in word only, but power. And we want it to be a contagious fire. We want our love for Jesus. That's He's right. our first to love. To ignite the nations. We want people to burn with, mm. I want to be in love with Jesus. I want to yeah. be lovesick. A contagious fire. Yeah. And so we're talking about burning that hearts. today. We're burning talking hearts. about the burning ones. Mm. And it's because... You know, we've been having all kinds of encounters. The Lord's been speaking yeah. to us about that we need to have some kind of a gathering. Okay, so the the Lord has been speaking to them that they need to have some kind of a gathering. Oh, tell us more about this thing that the Lord wants you to do. Give me more information about this later because I think at some time this year, we want to have a gathering where harvesters, revivalists, missionaries, those that feel called to a ministry of miracles, mm. gifts of faith and healing, the miracle workers called the Crusades, power evangelism, where we can all gather together. I think what would happen if we got 500 or got... A- Here we go. It always is this. When you hear a guy say, whoa, imagine what would happen if we got 500 people that all did this or that. Yeah. You know, if I, I, if I imagine the world would be just a greater place if Todd Bentley would admit that he's a complete charlatan. We continue... That feel called to a ministry of miracles, mm. gifts of faith and healing, the miracle workers called the crusades, power evangelism, where we can all gather together. I think what would happen if we got 500 or got a thousand fiery witnesses? Yeah. To- like- nothing, absolutely nothing, because you people actually don't preach the biblical gospel, and the spirit that animates you isn't the Holy Spirit.
Guys like you and me. Come on. It'd be like an axe when they said, you know, the, the, those who have turned the world upside down have come here as well. What would happen if you <laughs> gathered, you know, hundreds or thousands? I think we could take over the world. Of people that had that same DNA, yeah. that same like-mindedness. And come I on. know there's lots of guys out there. Yeah. There's lots of nameless and faceless ones. That's right. There's lots of guys that are our breed, our That's DNA, right. our good friend Ryan Wyatt, our good friend Jeremy Nelson. Right. And there's guys like Jeff Jansen. There's a That's whole right. new breed of ministries that are being raised up That's even right. in the last decade that are the nameless, faceless ones. Some of them are getting more of a name in ministry now. Yeah. But there's a whole generation that we don't know about yet. I've got good friends. My good friends, Rob and Millie from uh, Pennsylvania are coming down here. Yeah. And, and these are names. Well, considering the fact that water doesn't actually flow uphill, I'm sure that the next generation of your type of guys, Todd and Jason, are going to be much more buffoonish than even you are. Yeah, there's something about when you grab the torch of your calling and you come and put it in the fire and you stand with a company of like-minded revivalists who are all burning bright. There's something about that. You gather in a Jerusalem. You gather in a Jerusalem. Mm. Right? And it fans we all the encourage one yeah. another. That's iron right. sharpens That's iron. Right. Come on. Your fire, my mm. fire, cross-pollination, right. convergence of anointing. That's right. right. And then all of a sudden, you scatter them all out. To the nations. Come the on. burning ones. Yeah. The burning ones. You scatter them all out That's right. to the nations of the world. That's right. And, and then they walk. Like a plague. <laughs> a plague of burning ones. Mm. Into the harvest fields, and they burn. And other people are ignited. Like the nations foxes. Nations are ignited. Like the like foxes. The like the fox? Oh, no. Oh, man. Uh, Y'all know, familiar with the uh, the story of uh, Samson. Uh, Samson, uh, he took 300 foxes, tied their tails together uh, in pairs, and uh, you know put a, like a lamp or a candle in the middle of them and released them into the fields and ended up burning down the crops of all the Philistines. Yeah, oh, man. Yeah, you guys are just like burning foxes. They're the foxes. You know, that's, that's that story again. In Judges 15, you've got the story of, you know, here, here Samson had found a woman he wanted to be married to. And, the, and her father, who represents the father of lies, represents the religious systems and structures of this world, you know, the enemy. He, he tells the woman, you know, he could never really want you the way you are. And he actually gives that woman off to another. And Samson comes back and, and, he, is, and he couldn't believe that his bride... Yeah. You know, just like the Lord Jesus in his church, could not believe that his bride had been given to another, to a, a religion, religious system or a structure that would, that would place her in another man's tent. Yeah. And so what he did was in, in a righteous anger, he grabbed 300 foxes by the tails, tied them tail by tail, put a torch between their tails, and then sent them into the fields of the enemy. After they were burning. Come on, into the harvest fields. Lit a torch, 300 foxes, tail to tail, and sent them Boom, into the fields. Into the enemy's field. Oh, into the and, enemy's and, field. And that's the word. We've been receiving. Mm. That's been the prophetic word, the prophetic promise that Samson represents the great anointing. Yeah. What? <laughs> Have you guys gone to the William Tapley School of Hermeneutics? I, I just, I just want to know. Um, really? So, so Samson symbolizes the great anointing. Hmm. Really? Yeah. This is the same hermeneutic that Harold Camping uses. This is the same hermeneutic that uh, ta- uh, that. Um, uh, that William Tapley uses. This is the same hermeneutic that gets everybody in trouble all of the time. You you, you got to be real careful when you uh, you allegorize passages in Scripture and uh, and basically say that you figured out the secret meaning because nobody else before has come up with this. Really, so yeah. When I read the story of Samson in Judges chapter fifteen, I don't come up with oh well, Samson he represents the anointing. Oh, okay. 
And we need to gather the, the 300 boxes or gather the 300 harvesters, That's missionaries, right. revivalists. People. You gotta go gather your gather the foxes. Okay. People that feel they're called to a ministry right. of the glory, signs and wonders. Come on. And we need to have two a, by a two network, torches. Come on. fellowship yeah. for them all. Come together. And we got a fire burning. Yeah. And you got a fire burning, That's and right. they got a fire burning, and, and so many of these different ministries, we all got this fire burning. And, and then we can burn down the crops of the Philistines, which represents um, uh, uh, um, uh, BP. Yeah, the big the big corporate oil. That's what that means. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. That's a ticket. Yeah. We need to start burning yeah. one another yeah. and then igniting nations on fire and then scatter them. Now <laughs> We need to start burning one another. You can go to jail for that, by the way. Yeah. I had a dream. We're talking about visions and revelations. Yeah, please. I mean, while you're at it, go ahead. Share with us your dream, Todd. The Lord, we're going to pray for you in a few minutes because I know you're saying, I want to be a burning one. <clears throat> Remember the guys on the road? <laughs> to no, I, I, no, that's not what I'm saying. I don't want to be a burning one. <laughs> you know. I asked the guys that's on the right. road to a man. Yeah. They said, the Lord came and the Lord was moving on. And they said, our heart burns within us mm. for the Lord to remain, for the Lord to abide. That's the, the burning heart of the... Re yeah, no, uh, when you read the Road to Emmaus story, uh, the reason why their hearts were burning within them is because Jesus opened up the scripture and showed them that the scriptures were all about him and that the Messiah had to die and suffer and rise from the dead. <sighs> yeah, this... Uh, it's like he went into a, like a computerized Bible and looked up burning and you know and found oh here we got all these different instances of burning and now he's just throwing them all into his burning pot here and it's just absolutely absurd but please share with us your dream Todd I can't wait to hear it heart burns within us mm. for the Lord to remain, for the Lord to abide. That's the, the burning heart of the revivalist. Mm. I'm going to constrain the Lord. Our yeah. hearts are burning with us, in us, in hunger for the person of the Lord Jesus, for a revelation of the Lord Jesus. But I had a prophetic experience, and I've been talking to Bob Jones about this prophetic dream as well. And in this experience, it was a night vision. I, I, I woke up, and I was in this vision in the middle of the night, and I saw the Lord and his appearance was a fisherman, mm. like a fly fisherman. And the Lord was standing in ankle-deep water. I mean, I saw the gumboots, the, the suits that they would wear. Have you ever seen those fishing shows on TV? Yeah. And their fly fit, and the Lord was casting a net. And I thought, wow, what does this mean? And the only scripture came to me was Joshua 3, that the banks of the Jordan would overflow in the time of harvest. So there was right. a connection overflow that's right and harvest that when we said god it's a season of harvest there'd be an overflow overflow harvest yeah. and i thought of that scripture and then i talked to bob jones about it and bob jones said todd didn't you hear the prophecy i gave in 1990 1991 bob jones calls it the fisherman prophecy no wow and i said well bob i'm sorry i've known you a lot of years but i've never heard the fisherman prophecy he said yeah you know what's lost in this discussion with them um Todd Bentley and Jason Hooper, Christ, him crucified for our sins, the proclamation of repentance and the forgiveness of sins, sound biblical discipleship where the disciple is taught to carefully read, mark, inwardly digest, and have their hearts and minds transformed and renewed by the power of God's word, rightly taught, correctly divided, um, rightly handled uh, the full counsel of the Word of God and the message that the Holy Spirit really did, you know, have recorded there. 
Now we're just waxing eloquent about so-called dreams and visions where Todd Bentley saw Jesus as a fly fisherman. And, and some guy named Bob Jones said, oh, yeah, he had a fisherman prophecy back in 1980-something. Uh, yeah, all of the stuff, it distracts us away from Christ. And that not that the, the nature of Satan? He comes to us as an angel of light, a wolf in sheep's clothing, claiming to give us, you know, enlightenment, he actually darkens our souls. Claiming to give us the truth, he feeds us nothing but lies. Claiming to give us God, he gives us nothing but mythology and silly stories and silliness. (sighs) Yep, Todd Bentley's back. Can't wait for him to do his next revival and we can... See him on God TV kicking people in the head for the glory of Christ. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Sermon review time when we get back. We got a Chris Songson sermon. You don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Reaching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Of this sissy, pansy, cunning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Chris Rosebro here to talk about this month's perk for those of you who are members of the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. Have you ever been to Walt Disney World or Disneyland and taken a VIP tour of one of those parks? Well, if so, then you know just how valuable those tours can be and pointing you to things that you had never even noticed before. Well, this month's resource, Dr. Paul Kretzman's popular commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, is like a VIP walkthrough tour of the Gospel of Matthew itself. It's fascinating, in-depth, written on a lay level, and it'll help you to achieve a much deeper appreciation and understanding of this vital, vital biblical book. Now, if you would like to get a copy of this, this is only available for our crew members. So the way you join our crew is visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. Click on the one that says Join Our Crew. You're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And once you fill that out, we will send you an email giving you instructions on how to download this wonderful book. So head on over to fightingforthefaith.com, join our crew today, and thank you for your support. All 
All right, we're back. Hour number two, fighting for the faith. Sermon review time. Have you ever heard a, a sermon about reconciliation that completely biffs the gospel? Put your seatbelts on. Crash helmet. Bendy straws, tuck tape, uh, all of that stuff is going to be necessary for today's sermon review. The Ugly. Yep, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via South Hills Church, Corona, California. Pastor Chris Songson, I, I should say, um, motivational speaker, Chris Songson, presiding. The name of the sermon series that this was preached from is called Freedom. The name of the sermon, Part 3. So this is Freedom, Part 3. Now, one of the things that I've been making the claim uh, for a while now is that Chris Songson doesn't even know what the biblical gospel is. After hearing this sermon, if you aren't convinced of that same fact, that he doesn't know what the biblical gospel is, then I don't know how to help you. That's I, you're beyond my reach. <laughs> All right, let's kill the music here. All right, so without any further ado, here is uh, Chris Songson. The name of the sermon: Freedom, Part Three. Pay attention to what happens here. And I mean, forgiveness is actually kind of sort of talked about. But wait till you hear why you need to forgive. And wait till you see what he does with the biblical texts. Well, here we go. Hello again. <laughs> hey, I want to welcome all those who are watching on our online campus. It is so good to have you be a part of our series called Freedom. There's a couple things I want you to grab inside of your program. You will notice that there is the Freedom Flyer. If you could grab that, everybody grab that. We are going to uh, go through a little bit of our Freedom Part 3 in just a moment. As you're grabbing that, you saw a little video. Uh, we got coming up here just a couple weeks, Cy Rogers, one of the most incredible voices, speaks to thousands of people, and we have the honor of having him. And then if you, anybody watched The Biggest Loser, who's a fan of The Biggest Loser, Austin Andrews is on The Biggest Loser right now, and uh, he is. Uh, uh, there's only five left, and he's still on it, and he is going to be here four days after the grand finale. How did we land that? We're just South Hills. Um, no, and uh, so he's going to be with us, so we're very fired up about having that. What an opportunity. I yeah, mean, yeah, but do you have the winner of the Indy 500 coming and speaking at your uh, church? I mean, Biggest Loser's been around for a while. It's kind of passe. I mean, come on, we're giving you an opportunity to be a tour guide, not a travel agent, by going to a friend and saying, hey, we got the Cy Rogers guy, we got the guy right now from The Biggest Loser, we can't make it any easier for us to reach out. To yeah, but do you have Jesus? You know, he's the guy who rode from the grave. Last time I checked, 
that motivational speaker guy and the biggest loser contestant are all, they're both sinners. They didn't die on the cross. Remember that article I read, uh, you know, about uh, not you know, preaching Christ and not yourselves. Who cares if you have uh, anyway? Friends and family, and be their tour guide than bringing people like the current contestant from the Biggest Loser to South Hill. So, what an opportunity! And I want you to grab those outline. We're going to get into that, but before we uh, get into that, uh, as uh, it was announced last week, my new book came out called Handshake. We're really excited about that. Yeah, and uh, and uh, you'll see them in the plaza on the way out. And this is uh, the book. Yeah, don't forget to get your your copy of Chris Songson's latest book, Handshake. You can get them outside at the plaza. Yeah, okay. Book I wrote a couple of years back called In Search of Higher Ground. And uh, I want to encourage you, these books. Apparently, he hasn't found that higher ground yet because, like I said, this this uh, sermon will convince you that he doesn't know what the biblical gospel is. They're motivational books. They are books about helping you get to the top in your life and everything that God has for you. This is a book about 10 people that just uh, seem to be separate from everybody else. They just seem to have their, their, their something different about them. Actually, the subtitle is What the Great Do That Others Don't. And uh, I've noticed in life that the great, what makes the great great usually isn't talent. It's usually choices. And that's what this book is all about. This is another book of, of mine forwarded by Rudy. If you've ever seen the movie Rudy, it's forwarded by him. And uh, so there's a lot of forwards in here and, and whatnot. But here's the deal. Every single dollar is going to go towards our risk project. Our risk project does this. We help build water wells. We help feed people. We help people with medical care. One, one of these books is 15 each, two for... Yeah, but do you proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins so that after they receive their medical care and then eventually die, they don't go to hell? But you understand what I'm saying. For 20, if you got a book last week and you're thinking, oh, great, now they're running specials. Here's the deal. You can grab the other one, just go back there with the honor system and say, I'm getting this other book for five bucks because I already bought this one for 15, two for 20. Now, please hear me out. I don't care if you don't like reading. I don't care if you like, well, I don't really like reading. I don't like, I don't like books. I use them as doorstops. I don't care. Buy it as a doorstop, but let's support people that are in need by buying the books. I promise you, you'll love them, but more importantly, let's uh, not only grow ourselves, but let's make a difference by investing in people's lives. So make sure... Yeah, make a difference in the world. Yeah, there's the gospel. <clears throat> not... Everybody gets at least one, if not both of those books on your way out today. Everybody get it? Come on, let's support some people that need some help. So let's get into it. We are in this great series. Everybody doing good today? Come on now. Yes, come on. Let's have a little fun. Put a smile on your face. We're going to get right into it and talk a little bit about Freedom Part 3. Now, we're in this very important series. How many wearing your wristbands? Let me see real quick. Good job. If you're not, ay, ay, ay. Um, I just don't know what's going to happen to you. But this series is about the reality that everybody needs to be freed from something. Wouldn't you agree with that? Yeah, you know, because all of us are sinful by nature. So we need to be set free from slavery to sin, death, and the devil. That's what the Bible teaches. Can you, yeah, somehow, why do I feel like the list you're going to come up with doesn't even come close to that magnitude? Everybody, everybody's got something they need to be freed from. You might need to be freed from anger. You might need to be freed from an addiction. You might need to be freed from resentment. Pop psychology. Here we go. You might need to be freed from, uh, 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 I have no idea what it would be. Pro yeah, bad preaching. Yeah, we need to be freed from bad preachers like you. 
pride, or, but everybody's got something that they need to be free from. Now, we realize this, and we learned this in the last couple of weeks, that anything good, do you remember, takes what? Steps. Okay, more than six of us would be really awesome. Anything good takes what? Steps. All right. If you're online campus, you got to be yelling it out with us. So what we've learned is this, that God has a treasure with your name on it. And I believe with all of my heart that God wants you to be something incredible. God wants better finances for you. God wants a better marriage for you. God wants great. Got any verses that say this? I mean, I mean, that that would be the immediate question that comes to mind, because I'm hearing the sentence, I think that God X, Y, or Z. I think that God wants better finances for you, better this, better that. Oh, wow, what, a, what an amazing God you talk about. Sounds like he's totally on my side regarding all of the temporal things of earth. Um, yeah, um, Chris, do you have any passages that actually back up these assertions that you are making? Greater peace for you. God wants greater joy for you. That's just who God is. But the deal is, anything good takes steps. There are- yeah, anything good takes steps. Um, you'll notice what's going on here is that this is law preaching, not gospel preaching. In fact, this is all law and no gospel. So, yeah, I'm going to warn you here. Um, this is an illegal use of God's law. Yeah, if you think that you know that God's sitting up in heaven with his arms crossed just waiting to bless you until you get blessable. Those are the phrases that uh, Rick Warren uses. Um and Chris Songson is teaching the same theology. Uh well that's not the God of the Bible because here's the deal. If you want to be blessed by God based upon your law keeping, then you have to keep the law perfectly perfectly you cannot you know it, it the law demands perfection if you want to be blessed by god by the law then you have got to keep the law perfectly no ifs ands or buts about it if you have your bible flip on over to galatians chapter yeah let's see three <clears throat> chapter three galatians chapter three now if you haven't done this lately, I recommend doing it. Read all of Galatians in one sitting. Read all of Galatians in one sitting. Galatians is talking about, this is the Apostle Paul writing to the churches of Galatia because a bunch of Judaizers had come in and they were and they had completely taught a false gospel. And the, basically they were mixing works with grace. The idea being, that, well, you're not really a true Christian and you can't be saved Unless you believe in Jesus and, and you have to be circumcised. Um, you can't be saved unless you believe in Jesus and don't dance, don't smoke, don't chew, or go with the girls that do. That's the Galatian heresy. It's a mixing of works and grace. Okay, The Apostle Paul begins the uh, book to the Galatians by basically opening up a blistering salvo against the Judaizers and basically saying to the Galatians, even if we, that would be the Apostle Paul, or an angel from heaven, should come and teach to you a gospel other than the one that they had received, other than the one that had already been preached, let him be anathema, accursed. And the curse there is an eternal condemnation. It's the eternal curse. It's cursed to the fires of hell. That's what's going on here. 
So the Apostle Paul then launches into explaining, uh, first of all, that uh, he didn't get his gospel from just anywhere. He got it from Jesus Christ himself, and that he's even rebuked the great Apostle Peter, who uh, stood condemned because his actions weren't in keeping with the gospel at one particular time when he kind of drew back from the uh, uncircumcised Gentile believers when uh, when, uh, James and his party came to visit. And uh, and so Paul took him to task and rebuked him to his face in front of everybody. And now in Galatians 3, the Apostle Paul is going to <clears throat> turn his barrel, uh, open up an artillery salvo on the Galatian church themselves. We Listen, <clears throat> Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Christ Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. So so let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? It's the second one, not the first, but they received the Spirit by hearing with faith. Are you so foolish Having begun by the Spirit, are you now trying to be perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? It's the second one, by hearing with faith. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted or credited to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations of the world be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Let me read Galatians 2.9 again. So then those who are of faith are blessed. Those who believe and trust in Christ and his shed blood on the cross, they are the ones who are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So here Galatians 3.9 says the exact opposite of what Chris Songson said. The, it's 180 degrees different. Chris Songson is heading one way. And I'm telling you, the Bible says he needs to be heading the exact opposite direction. What he's preaching is works righteousness. God wants to bless you. God has all these things for you. But you have got these obligations, these hoops that you've got to jump through. There's fine fine print in the contract that requires you to meet particular um, obligations before God can... Bless you, but that's not what Galatians three nine says. In fact, Galatians three nine condemns condemns Chris Songson's theology. Let me continue. Galatians three ten. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and continually do them. Now it is evident 
that no one is declared righteous before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Let me read that again. No one will be declared righteous or justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. If you keep, you, you want to live by the law, you got to keep doing it. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Remember, the law is a curse. By becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. To give a human example, even with a man-made covenant or a contract, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified or signed. Now, the promises, they were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say in Genesis, offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, and that offspring, he is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant that was previously ratified by God. He's talking about the covenant made by by God. It's a unilateral covenant. It's the Abrahamic covenant unilaterally made by God. Where was Abraham when this was going on? Uh, sound asleep. Okay. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years later, does not annul a covenant that was previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by the promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So why then was the law given? Well, it was added because of transgressions until the offspring, that would be Jesus, should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. So is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scriptures imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were all held captive under the law. We were imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified or declared righteous in God's sight by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under the guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, 
for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, and you are heirs of according to the promise. Chapter 4. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. He is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts that cries, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but you're a son. And if you are a son, then you are an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those things that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, you have come to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years, and I'm afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. What then has become of the blessing that you felt? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged your eyes out and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through the promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai who bears children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? 
cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit the son with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but we are children of the free woman. For freedom Christ has set us free. So stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. What's slavery? The law. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of, ad- of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated now to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law, and you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Got it? This is a quick flight over the battlefield of law and gospel. Now let's continue with the sermon. There are some steps to take in order to get to the treasure that God wants us to take. Because those things like like, uh, uh, addictions and resentment and bitterness and all the things that why we're wearing these black wristbands, all those things that we need to be free from, in order to be free from those things, we got to take some steps. And if we'll take... In order to be set free, you have to take steps. I just read to you from Galatians that the law is slavery. Trying to take steps to set yourself free from sin is actually still slavery because the law is slavery. Take the steps, we'll get free, and we will get to that place where God wants us to be. Now, we have been looking at a few steps. Okay, week one, we looked at two steps. One, I need God's help. You can't do it on your own. Everybody agree, yes or no? Yes, okay. Second thing is... This sounds like a 12-step program. By the way, the slavery here I'm talking about, the slavery of the law is those who would try to be justified and declared righteous before God to earn a blessing from God by the law. That's slavery. We Christians know that we are set free from sin, death, and the devil by the shed blood of Christ. All of this is by grace through faith, and we are set free now from sin, from death, from the devil, and we can truly love God and love our neighbor. Yes, that's the law, but that's the third use of the law, and it's only for Christians, and it doesn't justify us, doesn't earn brownie points with God. What it, It's done because we, ha, we are a new creation in Christ. But this isn't what Chris Songson's preaching. Not only do I need God's help, but I've got to commit myself to my part of the process. Okay, I got to commit myself. I got to say I'm committed to this thing. Okay, thirdly, we said last week, you got to come clean. What does come clean mean? You got to admit it to God. This is just totally 12 step stuff being passed off as Christian doctrine, and it's not. You got to admit it to, uh, to yourself, man, I got a problem here, and you got to admit it to someone you trust. Okay, now the fourth step, and I want you to write it down somewhere on your outline, and then we're going to go over it in just a moment. Here's the word. Ready? The word is forgiveness. Say it out loud with me. What's the word? Forgiveness. Has anybody... Okay, now don't get excited because this isn't going to be the kind of forgiveness that you think it's going to be. It's going to be something a little bit different than that. Pay attention to the details of the forgiveness that he's describing. Anybody ever wronged you? Okay, only three of you. Man, we live in a good place. Corona's awesome. Corona's like heaven. 
Now, yeah, it's like the beer and no, uh, all right. Everywhere I travel, they're like, everywhere I travel, people are like, where are you from, Corona? Like the beer? Yes. Get off my back, you idiots. All right, now, here's some fun things. Come on, just put a smile on your face. Here's the most common lies. You've heard some of these before. These are lies that we all tell because did you know that the average person will tell their child before the age eight, speaking of Mother's Day, the average person will tell their child before the age eight 3,000 white lies. All white lies, those are still lies. That breaks the commandment that says, thou shalt not bear false witness. All moms. Because <laughs> dads are just nothing but truthful and godly. And I uh, you know, I'm ripping on moms a little bit, but don't worry, Father's Day's coming and I'm loading up. Um, all right, here's some lies. Uh, the check's in the mail. Have you ever heard that one before? That's a flat-out lie. One size fits all. Yeah, right, sure. No, notice that all of the lies that he's mentioning here are designed to get a laugh. I've heard that one before. Uh, give, me, uh, uh, give me your number, and the doctor will call you right back. Not a chance. That never happens. Uh, your baby looks beautiful. Let's be honest. I wish you would be. Because lying is a breaking of the Eighth Commandment. And it, its, its penalty is eternity in hell. You're not rightly handling God's law. And as a result of it, it's clear that you don't understand what the gospel is, sir. I mean, making jokes of lying? Wait, we get to the gospel. I mean, his version of the gospel, it ain't good news like at all. Come on! You've looked down and thought, oh, oh, neato. Here's some lies that mom and dads tell. You want a few of the lies that we tell? Here's a couple of mom and dads tell. Uh, here's one that always comes from dad. This is going to hurt me more than it what? That's such a lie. I always ask my dad, why does it look like you're enjoying it so much? Here's another one. If you tell me the truth, you won't get in trouble. Uh, really? Because I robbed a bank. How are we doing now? Here's one. Me and Daddy were just wrestling. That's a lie. And we'll just be done with that one and leave that there. Yeah. The goal is to make sure to tell that lie as many times as possible. No, I'm joking. All right, here we go. That's enough of that. Edit that out of the online cabinet. All right, now, every one of us have been hurt. We've told lies, but you know what? We've had people tell lies to us. You've had people tell a lie to you. You've had people cheat on you. You've had people abandon you. You've had people reject you. You've had people hurt you. That's part of life. And you've probably done your share as well. We've all been hurt by people. Now, in order for us to find true freedom, no matter what the cause is, in order for us to really ever get to that treasure chest of all that God has for us. Now, now remember what I just read from Galatians, that, it's, that we're set free by faith and trust in Christ. So he's talking in the category of freedom. What, what do we need to do, Chris, to experience freedom according to you? We're going to have to learn to forgive. Do you know why? Okay, now, did you hear we said you're going to have to learn how to forgive? Now, this sounds gospel-ish. It's got some gospel flavoring to it. 
but it's also mixed with some other stuff that makes the taste it's completely off. The details are coming. Stick stick with it. Because studies have shown these are studies from the behavioral science. These are studies from the American psychology. These are studies that have been done at two different universities that if anybody holds on to any sense of resentment, if you're a little bitter, if you're a little angry, if you're a little upset, if you haven't learned to deal with that, scientific fact has proven this, that it will fa- affect your physical health. And so you need to forgive so that you won't have any adverse physical health problems do do you have any bible passages that teach that in other words you're not gonna have your blood pressure will run a little bit higher than it should your stress level will run a little bit higher uh scientific fact has also proven that when you have a little bit of resentment in your life it also affects your relationships i may be bitter at you from something in the past but here's the key ready but it affects how I interact with all of you. It affects your relationship. You're actually getting robbed in your marriage if you're being resentful to someone from years in the past. Okay, And also it affects you mentally, and what it means by that is your outlook on life. They have shown that those that hold bitterness are less likely to make more amounts of money and less likely to be successful. Oh, okay, so if you, if you don't forgive, you're, probably, you're not going to make your full earnings potential. Oh, okay. Well, th- that changes everything now that money's involved. Isn't that amazing? Now, here's the amazing thing to me. I think it's it's so amazing that we have this resentment issue, and we all do. Everybody does. And they've got something in our heart where we're a little bitter at someone. We're still a little angry. There are those names that if brought up, you cringe just a little bit. Am I right or wrong? Everybody's got that. And unless we overcome that, we're always going to be robbed. And one of the steps to the treasure that, by the way, has your name on it, one of those steps is to be free to get to that treasure is I got to let go of all of that anger and all of that resentment. So if you want treasure, you earn the treasure by forgiving. Wow. And all of that bitterness, I got to let it go. Jesus saw this so important. He did. He saw it so important that he talked about it often. Matter of fact, throughout the Bible, it's mentioned uh, hundreds of times, the word forgive and forgiveness. Matter of fact, there's, there's a woman in the Bible that Jesus kind of met up with, and he, and, he, and he demonstrated forgiveness in this way uh, in front of some religious leaders and in front of this woman. It's on your outline. Let's take a look at John chapter 8, verses 4 through 9. We're going to break it down. Ready? Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? Now, hold on, let's stop right there, okay? It says that now, oh, actually, let's just continue. They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. Now, what were they doing? Understand something. The religious leader, a little history for you. The religious leaders were trying to trap Jesus because he, he, they brought a woman and they said, this woman was caught in the very adult, uh, act of adultery. The law says that she should be killed for it and executed. Now, what do you say? They were trying to trap him because if he said to, uh, to let her go and say, hey, just let her go, forgive her, then he breaks what's called the Mosaic Law, which comes from Moses. 
Now, if he says, no, execute her, then he shows harshness and he breaks the Roman law. So what they think is, we've got Jesus, because we don't really like him anyway, because he was kind of infringing on the religious people's territory, this Jesus showing up and offering forgiveness and love, he's infringing. So they think they're going to trap him, but of course they don't. And it says, but Jesus, now check this out, Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. Now, Okay, imagine that most of the, 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 the area was made up of dirt that's coming up on the screen right now. I got a little sample of it right here. Let's put it up on the screen. And, uh, um, the, and most of the area was made of this kind of dirt. Are we going up? There we are. And Jesus stooped down. Okay, now follow me. He stooped down and he wrote something, okay, in the ground. No one really knows what he wrote in the ground, but we know that he did. We don't know if he was writing out the Ten Commandments, number one. Number two, was he writing out the Ten Commandments? Was he just being sarcastic with him and drawing a happy face? We're not sure. I mean, he could have been writing Chris Songson, who was going to preach on this text in 2011 as a Galatian heretic. But we know that he wrote something in the ground that, uh, uh, that somehow kind of startled them, those religious leaders, for some reason. The Bible says, now let's look on it, that they, uh, he stoops down in the ground and he writes in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again. He was done with the sand, whatever he wrote. The Bible doesn't say what he wrote. And then it says this, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and he wrote in the dust again. We don't know what he wrote. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Now, lesson number one in this forgiveness process. Ready? I want you to write this in. Let others off the hook. Everybody say that out loud with me. That's probably a very hard one for us. Ready? One, two, three. Let what? Let you got to let others off the hook. Okay, here's Jesus. You know what he's telling her? He's saying this. He's saying, look. He says, uh, I sent them away. Look, I, I, I'm sending them away. I'm pointing out their sin too. They've sinned too. You've sinned, woman. And so he says, I want to, what he's telling her is this. He's teaching her a lesson on that day. I want you to imagine. Okay, now watch what he's doing here. Apparently Jesus is teaching the woman a lesson, but the text doesn't say that. And what she's going through, okay? Think about this. They drag her through the village. They're, everybody's mocking her. They're making fun of her. They caught her in the very act of adultery. Interesting that she only brought the woman and not bringing the man. You know, that actually broke the law as well, a little side note. But they brought the woman. He brings a woman. She's brought before the master, thrown down, laughed at, clothes ripped, tears coming down her cheek. And she looks up at Jesus, the master that everybody's talking about, and they say, this woman has committed adultery. Could you imagine what she felt? She must have looked at those other guys. Okay, now, at this point, this is Isa Jesus. Can you imagine? He, at this point, he's going to actually make a point about what Jesus is trying to teach the woman based upon how he imagines she felt. With incredible, not only guilt and shame, but the hate, the hate she had in those men. How dare you bring me in front of this Jesus? And how dare you drag me through the town? And how dare you make fun of me? And how dare... The text doesn't say that. The text doesn't say, how dare you drag me through the town? How dare you bring me before Jesus? It doesn't say any of that. Okay. Oh, boy. 
dare you talk about me? I think that this woman felt the same way that you and I do a lot of the times. You know, she, she felt guilty. She felt hatred towards people because they hurt her, they talked about her, they said bad things, and yet here comes Jesus along in the scene, and he says, look, he says, I want you to let them off the hook. I know that they've sinned against you. I know they talk bad about you. I know that they committed I know that they committed a crime against you. The text doesn't say any of this. And by the way, this is a disputed text. Uh what I it's important to note that this particular passage does not occur in the earliest manuscripts that we have in the New Testament. Um it has a long tradition, but it doesn't it's it's really difficult to tell exactly where this particular text came from. Now, that's why if you look in your Bible and you look at the footnotes, the footnotes will tell you, um, yeah, this is um, this is not in the earliest manuscripts. But if you have your Bible, flip on over to the Gospel of John, chapter 8. The Gospel of John, chapter 8. I'm going to read the passage for you so you can see what Chris Sunkson is doing here. He's actually mangling this text and inserting stuff into it that's not there. He's psychologizing this text. Um, John chapter eight, verse two, early in the morning, Jesus came to the temple. All the people came to him. He sat down and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. Now I'm going to point something out here. Everybody makes a big to do about how there, there was no guy here. Okay. All the text says is that the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. Um, how do you catch somebody in adultery? Believe it or not, it happens all the time. Two people are committing adultery and a spouse walks in or the, a, a, a child walks in or a family member or a friend catches them committing adultery. So everybody makes a big to-do about, oh, look, there's no guy there. All the text says is that the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. It doesn't give details as to how she was caught, nor does it make it sound like they're the ones who uh, who set this woman up to catch her. I mean, it's absolutely feasible based upon how this the, this text goes that this woman was committing adultery and her husband walked in on her and caught her absolutely within the realm of possibility the way this text reads. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw the stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Here's the punchline. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And he said, Neither do I condemn you. And from now on, 
sin no more. Here, Jesus is absolving this woman. Now, whether or not this is historical, don't know. Don't know. I mean, you're going to have to wrestle with the scholarship on this one. There's debates going back and forth on this passage. But the point is, is that Jesus doesn't condemn her, and he gives her mercy and grace and forgiveness. And now he wants her to bear fruit in keeping with that repentance and forgiveness. All this other stuff that Chris Songson is talking about, he's just flat out inserting this into the text. This you cannot you cannot exegete what he is saying out of this text. It's just not there. I know that they hurt you. I know what the things that they did. I think Jesus would come and sit right next to you right now, right now. And he would look deep into your heart and say, I know. I know everything you went through. I was there every time you cried. Every time you're driving down the street and you're thinking about that person and you're angry, I know exactly what you're going through. Oh, man. Hello. Um, Notice what he's doing here. He's telling the story in such a way that this woman is nothing but pure victim with, with a right to be angry at her accusers. She was caught in the act of adultery. I don't think that she's embittered towards those people who were bringing her to court. In Israel, this was a capital crime. I know exactly the pain. He understands it. When Jesus was on the cross, there was only seven things he said on the cross. One of them was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Isn't that interesting that only seven things that Jesus had to say on the cross, and one of them had to do with forgiveness. He was modeling it for us and saying, look, I'm, he's up there on the cross. These people have beaten him brutally, and yet he's yelling out forgiveness, saying, let him off the hook. Let him off the hook. That's, that's not so easy to do. I understand that. Sometimes we, get, sometimes we get angry and we don't seem to let things go. How many would agree with me that sometimes, sometimes it's hard to let things go? Am I right or wrong? You get a little angry, it's like, man, it's hard to let that go. Just, uh, just uh, on Friday night, I was driving to go speak somewhere. And uh, I came to, uh, uh, I was driving through past Palm Springs, out in the middle of Brawley and all this other area, and there's nothing out there. And I'm moving along. And all of a sudden, I look over to the other side of the road as I'm going like this down the highway, down the 10 or the 86 or whatever it is, and I'm going like this where all the people go to camp, you know, and ride their motorbikes and all that stuff. And this highway patrol goes by, and we make eye contact, you know? And he's flying this one. I'm going this one. I look over, and he looks at me like he's all mad. And I'm thinking, I don't know what he's mad about, you know? And so, and I'm in my wife's little Honda Civic Hybrid. You don't, yeah, I mean, it's not like the fastest car in town or anything. And so I'm flying along, and, uh, and then all of a sudden I look in my mirror, and I see him flying up, and I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, I am in trouble. He turns the lights on and pulls me over. And I'm thinking, what was I doing? I mean, I knew I was going a little bit fast, but not too fast. You know, I'm 90. Um, and I wasn't, like, out of control, but I, wasn't, I knew I wasn't going that fast. So I thought, man, he's, he's getting out. He goes, oh, you were speeding, sir. You know, and as he's getting out, you know, I'm thinking, what do I do? You know, I'm trying to get out of it, you know, and, uh, uh, and I'm thinking, how do I do this? You know, so and it was funny because I had the South Hills CD on my in the car st- stereo and it was singing all glory be to God. You know, the song we just sang. And so I crank it up thinking maybe he'll have mercy. All glory be to God. Don't give me a ticket. And I thought maybe. 
you would see it. I pulled, I had my Bible right there and I kind of put it on there and kind of tilted it up and aimed it, you know. And So he puts on a religious pretense in order to get out of a ticket. That's what I'm hearing. Open it up and yeah, let me get my license. Hold on. It's caught between Matthew and Mark. I'll get it in just a minute there. Hold on. None of that worked. He's an atheist. No, I, uh, here it is. Right here. Seven miles over the speed limit. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Seven miles, not 70 miles over the speed limit, seven miles. I called everybody on the way out. I got a ticket going seven miles over speed limit. I got a ticket. I Twittered it out, Facebooked it out, social media. I was on NBC. I was very mad. I was angry all last night. I was angry today. I'm now even talking about it in front of you. Do you see how hard it is to let it go? Now, your issue may not be as simple as a ticket. I understand that. But maybe there are some things you're thinking, okay, you don't understand. Let someone off the hook. You have any idea what they've done to me? They stole money from me. They lied to me. They cheated me. They violated me. They abandoned me. You have no idea what that person did. You're right. Okay, by the way, there is a passage that talks about unforgiveness directly, and it's taught by Jesus. If you have your Bible, flip on over to Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18. By the way, Kretzman's commentary on this chapter is brilliant, but I'm not going to read it. Uh, but you'll, you have, those of you who are crew members, take a look. Um, but I'm going to read this passage to you. This is the passage that talks about forgiveness and forgiving others. Okay, It also talks about unforgiveness. All right, so if you have your Bible... Matthew 18, verse 15. I'll start there. This is Jesus speaking. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses even to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So then Peter came up and said to him, Lord... How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. And then Jesus goes on to tell this parable. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. You might as well just say owed him $47 billion. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made so that the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me, I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. 
in case you're wondering who you are in this uh, parable, you're the guy that owes the king the $47 billion. Okay, This is you on your knees begging for mercy. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, about a month's wages is what this is. Seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Sound familiar? He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Why should we forgive? Not because there's... Not because it, you'll, you'll be able to earn more money in this lifetime. Not because you'll be able to maybe live a, a few years longer or you'll experience less stress and things like that. No, the reason why Christians forgive is because they have been forgiven much. Your debt that you owe God as a result of your sin that you've committed is about $47 billion. And to give you an idea as to how tough it would be to for you to pay off that particular debt, um, the interest rate on that loan, on that debt, is uh, 67% interest compounded daily, and you work a minimum wage job at McDonald's. Good luck paying the debt. It ain't going to happen. But this is what Jesus says is the reason we should forgive because we've been forgiven. That debt that you can't possibly even come close to paying was paid for by Jesus Christ, shed blood on the cross. He redeemed you. He reconciled you to God. He's the one who canceled the debt. Not just that he canceled it, he paid it in full. Now we continue. Right, I don't. And they don't deserve it. And you're probably right. They don't. They don't deserve for you to let them off the hook. But understand something. Letting them off the hook. Jesus talked about it in John chapter 4. It's the one thing he's, one of the seven things he said on the cross because Jesus understood something. Letting people off the hook is more about you than it is about them because you're the one that's really getting hurt in the matter. Letting them off the hook is more about you than it is about them. Oh, my goodness. You know, there was a, a college professor, and he did a little study. He was a psychology professor, and he was talking about uh, forgiveness and how we don't forgive people. And he told the students to bring uh, uh, Ziploc bags, big old Ziploc bags like that, and he had these big sack of potatoes. And he, and, uh, and he went around the room inside the university, and he got a little Sharpie pen like this, and he said, all right, he goes, I want you to give me a name of people that you're bitter at. So he went up to every student and they started saying the names of people they're bitter at. Now give me a name. Not the person you're bitter at, especially if they're in the room, but just yell out any name. That Chris, what the heck, dude? (laughs) Give me another name. All right, all right, Chris. 
because of you and your bitterness. All right, there it is. Now, what he did was, is he started, he wrote about three or four names on potatoes, and then he filled them up like this, and this is what he told the students to do. He said, okay, now, for the next couple weeks, I want you to walk around. Here's your assignment. I better not catch you anywhere without these potatoes. So they would take them to bed. They would take them to uh, work. They would take them to every class. If they went out on a date, they would take it with them. If they went out to the movies, it was them, their date, and the potatoes. They went everywhere. After a couple weeks, the professor said that they began to complain that it was heavy and that it weighed so much, and they didn't like carrying it around anymore. Another week or two went by, and they said that it began to smell. Another week went by, and they said, you know what, professor, it's smelling so much People don't even want to be around us anymore. It was then that the professor obviously gives the incredible lesson and says, that this is unforgiveness. These are the people that you're bitter at, and you're walking around, and it's heavy on you, and it's and it's weighing on you. It ain't weighing on them. It ain't weighing on them. And it's starting to give off an ugly odor for you, not for them. And it's affecting your relationships because people don't want to be around you, and you can't be as close to them because of the smell of this ugly thing called unforgiveness. Man, he pointed out something. You know, I read something recently uh, about forgiveness. It said, to forgive is to set the prisoner free, only to find out that the prisoner was you. You're the one. I'm the one. We think that, oh, wait a minute. Wait, hold on a second. You're telling them that that I got to let them off the hook? Jesus was saying, let them off the hook. He was saying, look, if you want this treasure, then what you got to do is you got to get to the sports step and you got to let them off the hook because you'll never, ever get all that I have for you until you can let people off the hook. Well, they don't deserve it. Again, I I think this absolutely proves he does not know what the biblical gospel is. Here we are talking about forgiveness, and, 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 and I'm just going, ugh. He's not even close to getting it right. Yeah, and he's going, I understand they don't. Neither do you, by the way, but I understand they don't. But understand this, you're never going to get everything you want. It's more about you than it is about them. Let others off the hook. The second thing is this. Let's take a look at it. Let's go to the back of the outline. It says, then Jesus stood up again, and he said to the woman, what did he say to the woman? Say it with me. Where are, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Here comes the second one. You got to let yourself off the hook. This woman. Yeah, like I can let myself off the hook. Was an adulterer. I'm going to go back over to the sand. This woman was an adulterer. Understand something about this. This woman was an adulterer. She made mistakes. Yeah, Jesus said, let them off the hook and maybe... Made mistakes. Adultery. (laughs) Whoops. (laughs) Made a mistake. Maybe she could grab hold of that. But how does she let herself off the hook? She's an adulterer. She, she, She feels that sense of everybody's looking at me and she feels bad about herself. I bet that if she got to write in the sand... I bet that she would probably kneel down, and and I I think that maybe she would write the word guilt. Maybe she would write that because I maybe so we're right. We're preaching about what she may may write in the sand. You never know. She might write in the sand a a picture of Snoopy. She could draw in the sand a, a, a picture of a bunny rabbit or a bird or a chickie. Um, she could maybe 
just draw a spiral in the sand. Who cares? It doesn't say that she drew in the sand. Bet that she felt incredible guilt for what she had done. The guilt that she had felt for who, what she had done and the mistakes that she had made had to be gigantic, and they're no different for you and I. Boy, I bet that if we could all get in a confessional booth, could you imagine the things we'd hear from each other? Oh, my gosh, we'd never want to see each other again, including me. We've all made mistakes, and that guilt is huge. Annie Le- they're not mistakes. They're sins. Barry was here last week. She had been a prostitute for 10 years. She now has a ministry that reaches out to those that are hookers and, and prostitutes in Vegas. She has a home where they can come and get rescued. I went out to lunch with her, had an opportunity to talk with her for a couple hours. And man, she told me some stories that were mind-boggling. You know, about the, I always thought pimp was like a word from years ago, you know, but it's still, they still call him a pimp, you know. And she said, man, she goes, they will threaten you. They'll find out where your folks live and they'll find out where your brother and sister lives. And, and then, in addition to that, they'll do everything they can to get you pregnant. Once they get you pregnant and have the baby and you start raising the baby, and if you leave them, the baby's dead. And so is everybody else that you know and love because they know where they live because you made the mistake of telling them years ago. And she says, it's an unbelievable trap. She goes, I finally found a way of escaping she said, but you got to, can you imagine, she said, what I felt like, what I, how I put my parents in jeopardy, how they knew that they had a daughter that was a prostitute, and how people would view me from that day forward for the rest of my life. I think that if Annie LaBerre wrote in the sand, I think she would write something like this, according to what I talked to her about. The shame that she felt in her life must have been huge. The guilt and the shame all the things that she must have felt. And I think the things that probably you and I feel as well. Because we're thinking, man, I've blown it. And, and, and some of us are sitting here going, you don't understand what I do when nobody's looking around. You have no idea the pornography that I look at. You have no idea the drinking that I do. You have no idea what's going on in my mind. You have no idea how I look at other men or women. You have no idea what's going on inside my life, the the things that I've done wrong, the things I'm addicted to, the things that I say, the things that I do. You have no idea. And I understand. I don't either. We all got those mistakes. No, they're not mistakes. They are flat-out rebellious sins against God. And if somebody is feeling guilt as a result of doing those types of things, the solution is the cross and the forgiveness of sins won by Jesus on the cross. Where is the cross here? I'm hearing about so-called forgiveness, but I'm convinced you don't even know what it is. But understand what Jesus was saying to that woman. I don't condemn you and neither do they. Now go and sin no more. Here's what Jesus was saying. Let it yourself off the hook. No, no, no. Jesus was saying, I forgive you. There's a difference. Yeah, but I've hurt my family. I've said ugly things. I understand, but you got to let it go. See, here's here's the thing that I love. One of the many things I love about Jesus Christ is he can take our guilt and he can take our shame and he comes down and he just sort of just kind of wipes it all away and says, you don't have to be like that anymore. You don't have to feel like that. You don't have to live like that. You don't have to have that inside of your mind. You can let it go. Let others off the hook or you'll never get to that treasure and let yourself off the hook or you will never get to that treasure. I- yeah, see, if you want treasure, you have to let yourself off the hook. Well, oh, wow, that sounds like motivation there. I promise you. 
it'll never happen. When my daughter was young, she was, uh, well, she's young now, she's 17, <laughs> but uh, um, she was, I don't know, five years old or something, and she had, uh, uh, her and her little friend across the street made a, had a little tiff. Now, you have to understand my daughter. My son, if you tell him something, he just immediately lines up. Yes, Dad, okay. Not my daughter. Well, you know, we need to talk about it. I, you're five years old. We don't need to talk about anything. But she'll, she's just that way. She's just, you know, they're just totally two different. She's all got mom. No, she, uh, she just like, she has an opinion and that's it. And so she, she went over there and she got in a little bit of a tiff and they made each other mad. And she, her little friend said something she shouldn't have said. And my little daughter said something she should have said. And she came over and she was all upset, not even crying, just upset. I don't want to play with her no more. That's it. We're done. You know, she's like five, six years old. That's it. That, 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 you know, whatever, however she was. I'm done with that. And I said, you're going to go over there and you're going to apologize for what you've done. You're going to make this conflict right. And so I started talking to her. I said, you're mad at her. She's mad at you. You go over there and apologize. I'm not going to do that. No way. I go, yes, you are. No, no, no. I'll never forget it. I can remember it. I remember what clothes she was wearing. I'm dragging her across the street. Not a chance. I'm not going. And I'm bringing her. I'm like, you're going to do it. We ding dong on the door. The door opens up, and she goes, my dad says I got to say I'm sorry. I'm like, that's not exactly apology. Well, I go, try that again, Gracie. I mean, it was a serious moment. She goes, I'm sorry, according to my dad. I said, one more time. I'm sorry. You know, she, anything. <laughs> Rebellious. No, she, uh, uh. But what I was trying to do is, I was saying, Gracie, you've got to take the steps to make this right. And it wasn't the easiest thing. I had to drag her across. You've got to take the steps to make this right. Remember those words because he's going to end up applying that to your relationship with Jesus. You've got to take the steps to make things right with Jesus. You know what? I think Jesus would do the same thing to you. I think out of love, he's going to drag you up these steps to this fourth step. And he's going to go, man, I got something really, really cool for you. Really good for you. If you'd open up this treasure box, better health, better wealth, man, better relationships, a walk with God that's deeper, better peace in your life, stronger faith. I got all that for you. But until you let others off the hook and until you let yourself off the hook, you're never going to be able to get there. It was so important to him that it was talked about all throughout the Bible. It was so important to him that he mentioned only only seven things on the cross and one of them was about forgiveness. I want to encourage you, man, let people off the hook. Let people off the hook. Just be done. You're, you're, so that you can get the treasure. This is what you're doing if you don't let people off the hook. It's smelling up you. It ain't smelling up them. You have noticed the people that you're mad at, most of them don't care. They don't. It's like you're mad, whoopee, they're going on. They don't care. You're the one that's getting hurt. And let yourself off the hook. We've all made mistakes. I'm the kingpin of doing that. We all make mistakes. Let it go. You know, maybe today that you're in a place, you come into this room, or maybe you're watching here on, on online, and you're thinking, man, I got, I got a lot of things I could write into that sand. <laughs> I got a lot of mistakes I've made, and I know that I'm not where I should be with God. That's what I love about this story. It was all about reconciliation between a woman who felt like she didn't deserve God and a Jesus who was desperately in love with her. And that's what, that's what it's all about for us. Man, you might be in a place where Christ is not the center of your life. You might be in a place where you're not walking in that relationship with him like you should. This story is all about Jesus saying, come here, here's all the things you've done wrong, and here's what I think about him. 
Let's just get rid of that. And let's you and I start a brand new relationship right now. Today is a day for you to start a brand new relationship with him. If you're not where you should be, man, don't leave this auditorium without making it right. Let's pray. Okay, now normally I stop guys like this when they start to pray. We're going to keep going because, again, listen carefully. He wants you to make things right. Matter of fact, let's go ahead and just stand together if we could. We're going to stand and pray. God, we are, we are so thankful, God, for this incredible um, story that we read, Lord, about forgiveness, letting others off the hook. Cue sappy music. God, help us to do that. Help us to let other people off the hook because we're the ones carrying the sack of potatoes. God, to let ourselves off the hook because we've all had some mistakes that we've made that we keep going back to and think, I can't believe I said that or did that. God, help us to let it go in our own hearts. But maybe you're here today and you say, Chris, I need to do what happened right there with that woman. I need to reconcile things with Jesus. With your eyes. I need to reconcile things with Jesus. Eyes closed and you say, man, I'm just, I need to make things right with him. I need, I need to make things right with him. <clears throat> you have your Bible, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting at verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God who, through Christ, reconciled the world to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us, and we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. When you compare the verbs in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16, who's running the verbs? Are you the one reconciling your relationship to Jesus and God? Or is Christ the one who is reconciling your relationship to God and reconciling the world to himself? Jesus doing the reconciling by not counting men's trespasses against them because he has paid the debt in full. You see the difference? Songson is 180 degrees wrong, and when you listen to his verbs and you see who's running his verbs, you're the one who has to reconcile your relationship with Jesus. You're the one who has to make things right with Jesus. You're the one who has to get it all together. But the message that Christians have been given is the message that God has done the reconciling, and he's done it all in Christ for us to reconcile a relationship with him. You've walked with him at one point in your life or maybe maybe you never have, but today's your day to reconcile that with him and to make it right with him and just say, Jesus, today I give you my life. All the things I've done wrong, God, wipe them away like you did for that woman in that, where you wrote in the sand and said, no more. God, I pray that you would help us. If you're here today and you say, Chris, 
I'm not sure about my relationship with God, but I want to make sure that I am sure before I leave this auditorium. I want to know where I'm at with Christ. Whether you've done this before, that doesn't matter. If it's your first time here, whatever. First time ever responding. You're not where you should be with Christ, but you want to get there. Would you do me a favor? Would you right now just slip up your hand in the air and just say, man, I, I got to make it right with him. I've done a lot wrong, and I want him to erase it. I've got to make things right with him. Again, this is gospel-ish, but the verbs are all wrong. And I want to I want to start a fresh new relationship with Jesus Christ. That is you. Just slip your hand up in the air. Yeah. Awesome. We're going to we're going to pray right now and we're going to just we're going to pray and just ask God to help us not only to come into our life but to do the things that we've learned here today. I've read somewhere that it's not so that we can get the treasure, whatever that is. Not knowledge that is power. It's the application of knowledge. So God, I pray in the name of Jesus, you would help us to apply what we've learned. Say this after me. Say, Jesus, wipe away my sin. Now that sounds like the gospel. That's a little closer. All the mistakes I've made. Uh, They're sins. They're not mistakes. And reconcile me back to you. (laughs) Ah, okay. Uh, Well, Jesus has already done the reconciling. Help me, Jesus, to let people off the hook and to let myself off the hook because that's what you did for me. Today is a new day. I want to be free. Come on, say it like you mean it. I want to be free from resentment, from guilt, from anger. How about forgiven of my sins? From bitterness. This is all just psychology. Unforgiveness. I want to be free. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Come on, let's celebrate his love. Come on, put your hands together. Yeah, I'm convinced he does not really actually know what the biblical gospel is. And the real good news that he's supposed to proclaim. He's too busy being relevant and and trying to reinterpret things via the pop psychology, seeker-driven, purpose-driven lens. As a former member of Saddleback, he learned his lessons well. And he's he's a motivation. He just does not understand the scriptures, does not even know where to go to for the basic text. For the the talk about who's doing the reconciling, how we're reconciling, what forgiveness is about, why we should forgive. So the the reason you should forgive is because God has this treasure for you, and this it's it's all these psychological benefits that He wants to give to you, but He can't give you the treasure until you let other people off the hook. Oh man, what a train wreck! What a train wreck! And and a clear proclamation of sins. And notice, I mean, all when sins were brought up, they were just mistakes. They you know they they were oopsies. And uh, and this was not true contrition for uh, sinning against God that he was proclaiming here. This was something very different. And as a result of it, the, the, the message of the cross definitely suffered. But the whole thing is just a train wreck and a mess. <sighs> Never ceases to amaze me. <sighs> Folks, the good news is that 
God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. We've been given the ministry of reconciliation. We as Christians are supposed to go and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. And yes, that forgiveness of sins is even there for Christians. In fact, that's who we should be primarily preaching it to so that we continue to look to Jesus Christ, the author and the perfecter of our faith. <sighs> Sad. Anyway. So what'd you think? I, I, you know, I'd love to give your get your feedback. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross. For all of your sins. He was reconciling you to himself. He's done the reconciling. Amen. Amen.